Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 70 of the Benzo Free Podcast. 70. That's a few. <laughs> I've been doing this for a little while. It's pretty cool to reach 70. It's pretty cool. In case you didn't know, this is this episode is actually part two of our two-part series. That is the conversation with Dr. Robert Valak, a pharmacologist, about benzos, about FDA, about addiction, dependence, about physiology, about all kinds of good stuff. So please stay tuned and Catch the second part. If you haven't listened to the first part, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episode of this podcast, which is episode 69, and you can hear the first part of it. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. (laughs) I feel like I just spoke with you because I just did. Um, (laughs) You may notice this is the same shirt I had on in the last video. That's because I am recording these back to back. And as I mentioned in the last one, I recorded them back-to-back and then found out I had a mic problem and have to record them back-to-back all over again. So here I am. But I'm going to wrap this up, and it's going to be good. I don't have that much to talk about in the intro because primarily there's a lot to cover. we got a good long Benzo story to share with you. And we also have, of course, the interview with Dr. Valak, so I don't want to take up too much time. But I still want to ramble a little bit because it's what I do. <laughs> you know... um, and one of the things I noticed, um, I was talking to a, a friend the other day, one a friend, a, a mortgage broker. And so we're talking talking about that. And it was funny because um, one of the conversations she had, the mortgage broker had for me, um, when I was talking, what she said, what do I do? And I told her that um, I actually host a podcast and a YouTube channel on anxiety and anxiety medication. <laughs> You'd be amazed at the number of people who that catches the interest of because I mean it can be anybody but somebody always says well that's me or that's my brother or my cousin or my uncle or my 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 dog or you know somebody else I know suffers with anxiety or is on these drugs or whatever it happens all the time in fact that's one of the reasons for a long time I wasn't telling anybody what I was doing I kind of a private that way sometimes plus I don't want to bore them but now I'm not going into a long spiel about it, but if they ask me, I just fly out and say, well, I do this and this. And you'd be surprised, probably half the time, if not more, I wound up into conversation about somebody who's struggling and wants to talk through things. And it's really great. And this this happened with with her. And not only is she struggling with anxiety, but also anti-anxiety medication and is on it. So I, I backstepped a bit and said, okay, tell me about it. And I walked her through it. And I said, be careful of the horror stories and and this, and said, you know, if you decide, and of course it's your choice, if you'd like to come off a benzodiazepine, um, and I couldn't advise her, but I told her to work with a doctor, and 
it's something she wishes to pursue to make sure you do a slower taper and that you know you do it properly here's the information I gave her some information on my website and it was really interesting and then she told, spoke with my wife today and my wife shared with me that she was really excited about it because we had this wonderful connection this wonderful conversation and we were laughing about the things we go through and stuff like that and she really has a good very centered you know kind of spirit and attitude about this and so it's nice to see her um, you know shine and kind of get excited and she she said she's even taking a second look now at some of her priorities and I, that really hit me because that's exactly what I did in benzo withdrawal was take a second look at some of my priorities because it was my priorities that kind of got me into this place in the first place. I mean, I didn't sign up for the drug, and most of you didn't either. I, mine was prescribed for stomach medication. But I took it for 12 years, and in those 12 years, I never once, or in those first 11 years, until the end, never once looked it up on the Internet. Never step back to ask what I'm taking, why I'm taking it. Am I getting benefits from it or not? Or is it doing anything to me? Or what? I didn't ask. I was too busy. And I think we all get too busy. And we all get so busy chasing that thing. Success, fame, money, family, spouse, the white picket fence, the... Whatever it is, we're all so busy chasing that because we are so convinced that when we get there, life will be better. And yet it rarely is. It rarely is. And for some of us, it takes an event like benzodiazepine dependence to break us out of that race, to break us out of that mold, to help us step back a second and say, wait a minute. Where am I going again? And why am I sacrificing the present moment? Why am I sacrificing all the stuff that is around me, all these wonderful things that I'm just not seeing, not hearing, not experiencing, for that thing that I think is going to make me happy one day? And why don't I realize that inside, deep inside of me, that happiness, that joy, that meaning already exists. That's what I came to. And I started to reshift my priorities. And that's what she's doing right now. Kind of looking at her priorities. Starting to, she even mentioned that she's looking at why she's working so hard. With the lower rates right now, most mortgage brokers are working very hard right now. And she's getting exhausted. And I feel for her. But it's interesting because we keep having that elusive dream that's been sold to us. That if we could only have this, if we could only have that, if we only were that person, if we were only doing this, we would then be happy. But there is zero evidence that fame, fortune, money, success create happiness. There's none. There really isn't. And yet we're sold this story. We think it is, and we we pursue it. So I think it's just important for us, at least for me, and I'm talking for me here because I'm not telling you what to do. I never want to be doing that. I'm telling you things that I've learned that might help me, 
Maybe one of them, one of those might help you too. Maybe they won't. Each one of us has our own path, and I would never get on here and tell you my path is the way you should take, because it's not. I will never tell you you should believe what I believe, because those are my beliefs, not yours. I'll never tell you what values you should have, because those are my values, not yours. you got to figure that out for yourself, <laughs> as you should. But sometimes, stepping back and taking a look at the big picture and saying, where am I going? And what's it going to be like when I get there? Maybe good questions to ask. Maybe good questions to ask. Let's move on. Okay, um, our format today is going to include the introduction, which you just heard, our Benzo story, our feature, and our moment of peace. Our feature, of course, is part two of the interview with Dr. Robert Valick. It's a great one, so please stay tuned for that. And before we move on, don't forget we need your help. We need feedback of any kind. We truly want to hear from you. There are four ways you can provide feedback. One, comment on the YouTube channel. That helps a lot. Two, comment on the podcast post. Three, I'm going to look at my notes for this one. Oh, yeah. Our feedback form at benzofree.org slash feedback. And four, okay, what was four? Oh, on our podcast carriers because that does help other people find us. See, sometimes I try to remember without having to look at my notes. My memory, my cog fog, all that good stuff sometimes gets in the way. Uh, while you're on the website, please don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And if you wish to support what we do here, and I really appreciate that, we are entirely donation-driven here, so any little bit you can help, please visit our donation form at benzofree.org slash donate. I'm getting ready to launch the new website. It's really, I think, looking good. I think you're going to like it. So... Let's move on to our Benzo story. We have one story today. It's from Chris in Melbourne, Australia, down under. I love these ones that are from all over the world. It's great to have that kind of diversity and variety on this show. His story includes a variety of Benzos, mixing it with some alcohol, a little partying when he was young, um, but also ends with um, you know, a positive note. And I think he's got a good attitude going into all this. Chris writes, I've always been an anxious person, and this was compounded mid-2019 with the birth of my daughter. And sleep going out the window. I have a history of alternating periods of binge drinking and sobriety, major partying, partying as a teen, early 20s. The drinking is out of my system for the most part, but I suspect it's contributed to my ongoing issues with benzos. I work a high-pressure job, which comes with a lot of stress, and I've learned over time that I don't always cope well with that stress. Over the years, I have occasionally gotten a prescription of diazepam or temazepam for sleep, stress, flying, and I would always end up taking the pills almost every day until the script runs out. Doctor would usually give me 10 at a time. And I never really thought anything about it. Late 2019, I was nearing the end of a 10-pack of Valium and used the last one for a flight overseas for work. I had been experiencing intermittent derealization, and I never connected it to the benzos. I, I thought it was stress or sleep-related. But I did notice that a couple of beers would make me feel better. 
I was in another country for work and had no access to benzos and began feeling very unwell over the following days. Insomnia, nightmares, slurred speech, muscle twitching, stiffness, bad brain fog. I thought I must have some kind of serious neurological disease or something, but same thing. A few beers and I'd feel fine. I happened to get some clonopin from my work doctor. Didn't know it was a benzo or anything like that, or even what a benzo was. But they made me feel fine again. I didn't join the benzos and how I had been feeling together at all, and was mostly down a hypochondria black hole. I returned to Australia and went to the doctor, who checked me over and, surprise, surprise, prescribed me with more Valium and Valdoxin and antidepressant. I was given a packet of Xanax from a friend who had no longer needed them and had said that they are good for sleep. So, just to sum up where I am at this point, and I feel so stupid about it, <laughs> I was taking Valium, Xanax, and drinking quite often to manage symptoms, which ultimately turned out to be benzo-related anyway. I proceeded to take Valium every day for around three and a half months, somewhere between five to ten milligrams a day, and occasionally topping that up with some Xanax and alcohol. I had this lingering worry that I had a serious health complaint, and still had not associated it with the medication. On the 15th of June, I was promised a new position, a massive promotion that I had been working towards for two years. And one key point was that I had to undertake a medical and drug test. I did some research and learned that those medications are frowned upon in my industry due to safety aspects of my work, heavy equipment, etc. So on the 17th of June, 2020, I had my last dose of Xanax and went cold turkey. I felt fine for three or four days and then hit a massive wall. I felt like I had suddenly become brain damaged and my memory and attention span was completely gone. I had the worst depersonalization, derealization I could ever imagine would be possible. Echesthesia. I also had muscle weakness on one side, bad slurred speech, confusion, depression, anxiety, muscle twitching, spasm. The list goes on. All that fun stuff that people report. In hindsight, I would have done a taper. But at the time, I didn't know anything about that. I have since found Benzo Buddies Forum, which has honestly helped me so much, along with your podcast, and I will get your book ASAP. Things have been up and down since then. I am just over three months off Benzos now. A lot of my symptoms are gone. The mental side is almost completely gone. However, I, I still have physical symptoms like twitching, weakness, which compound the anxiety I still have, and, and spasms. Doctors are hesitant to blame benzos for anything, but also think there is nothing else wrong with me and my issues are psychosomatic. I feel like things are gradually improving at a pace where I will probably be feeling pretty okay by six months, and that's okay with me. In hindsight, 
I was aware that benzos can be addictive, but I never imagined the sporadic use over 2019 would lead to a dependency, leading me to constant daily use in 2020. And I think this is something doctors really need to be more proactive with, about warning people about. This stuff is scary. Thanks again for all your great work, Chris. Oh, thanks, Chris. Uh, it sounds great at the end that you may have found the light at the end of the tunnel. I really hope that the symptoms are subsiding for you and want to continue to do that. I think it's great. I'm so glad you found the cause of what your symptoms were and that things are starting to improve. That's where so many people want to get to and and find the answers to get them to the end of this and figure out what's going on and what's causing each symptom and what's going on with everything else. The complication of benzos and alcohol, they can be nasty, as we know. And we're, we're, we're not really warned. We really aren't. I'm sure it's in the literature, I mean, almost every medication you take says don't take with alcohol or be careful taking with alcohol, at least until you know how you react. But that's the funny part of it is that you can take it for a while, and if you don't feel you react too badly, you keep taking it. I mean, it says right there. I think it says that on benzos. I don't remember exactly. But, but, but now we know that alcohol acts on the exact same GABA receptors as benzos. No wonder there's such a problem. Benzodiazepine, one of the one of the still approved uses of benzodiazepines, even in short term, is for alcohol detox because it's one of the most effective medications to help them because there's some similarity here. But alcohol is such a factor in so many people's lives. We don't think of it and we don't notice it and we're not really warned about it. It just complicates things. I'm still drinking rarely. Not because I ever noticed a direct correlation or even noticed a major problem, but I got it in my brain that the less I drink, the better. So maybe that's a good thing that came out of it. I don't know. I like having a beer, <laughs> but I don't reach for one as often as I used to. And I think a lot of us came out of this with that kind of attitude. Anyway, Chris, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story. Wonderful story to share, and please keep in touch. Let me know how you're doing, and um, and I really appreciate hearing from you. Take care. Now, let's move on to our feature, second part of our interview with Dr. Robert Valick. Oh, this is a good one. Um, if you haven't listened to part one, as I said in the opening, please go listen to that first. It would make more sense. It'll be more consistent. Um, just a reminder, Dr. Valik is a pharmacologist, professor at the University of Colorado, director of the Center for Drug Abuse Prevention at the University of Colorado, and I shared his full bio in part one, so go back to that episode if you want to hear his full um, list there in that intro. And just a reminder, I recorded this on Zoom, so the video, I mean remotely, so the video and audio aren't the best quality, but I think it's one you can totally make out and make sense, and but just not the same quality as we do recording here in the studio. So um, I think that's it. That's enough for me to kick us off. I think we're picking up right after we finished talking about addiction versus dependence, and we're jumping in to, I think, where we are and what can be done and why is it taking so long for us to start making changes on benzodiazepines. I think that's where we are. So let's 
join the interview in progress. Back in the 60s, there were already some warnings. In 79, Senator Ted Kennedy, you know, let it set its subcommittee into the dangers of these. We've had, we had a task force from the APA come out in 1990. Yep. Why does it take five decades for us to, you know, finally get the ball rolling on this? I think, unfortunately, and with opioids, the body count got high enough. Okay. And it's all about either morbidity, and when I mean the body count, I mean the counts of people who are affected negatively, or the most dramatic version of that, of people overdosing and dying, is why opioids got the attention they did. We didn't get the attention when 115 Coloradans a year were dying of opioids. I couldn't get people to pick up the phone. That's still a lot. That's perfect. Yeah. But when that number became 500, 800, or 1,000 in a year, now people talk about it. And it really, yeah. that's what changed. Was you know, that makes a lot of sense affected. because... Um, like with um, Jill Hunsaker Ryan in the Department of um, Colorado Public Health and Environment, the thing that got her attention was linking the data to suicide. That's how we got her attention to start to, you know, dig deeper into it. Right. So you're right. If if you can tie it to suicide data or to overdose deaths or something, you're going to get the attention. But chronic suffering is so subjective. It's hard, I think, to get people's attention, you know, especially in the governmental and medical professions of how difficult this is. That's absolutely true. It's just very hard to do that. And unless it's dramatic enough, and usually it's mortality counts. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I, it's, I hate to be crass and I wish it were not true. I, I've spent my whole professional career wishing and hoping and trying and, and trying to roll that rock up that hill without that kind of information. And it's extremely difficult to do because there's a lot of suffering out there. There really is you know, a lot of people in pain of different kinds. A lot yeah. of people suffering. There's a lot of people with cancer. There's a lot of people with heart disease. There's a lot of people with you know all kinds of things, and all of them are important. Exactly. And you're fighting for attention, basically, in the scheme of you know what we have limited resources and limited attention span. Even if we want to be paying attention, I'll I'll pay attention eight eight or ten hours a day, and then I gotta turn my brain off for a while because I only have so much attention I can give in a day. And we have that same problem. You know, we have to compete for attention and raise this issue and show the suffering that this causes. And I think it's just hard to do. And I think the best ways are these strategies you're talking about, link it to things that people want to talk about. Opioids yeah. and the concomitant issues or suicide and the related, the, the relation between them, which is a, a very strong link. And then now starting to build and show the numbers, the cases that look at the people impacted right. and count them. And it's, it's difficult, but it's incumbent upon all of us, uh, me and the scientific and medical community, to work with people like you in the community of people who are affected to say, how do we do a better job of that? How do we count this better? How do we show how, the, how this is impacting people in terms of numbers of people, the impact on their lives, the impact on their families, the impact on their work and their communities, the real impact of this thing to elevate the conversation? And it's just, it's a hard thing to do, but it's, I think that's the challenge in front of us. And I think we um, here in the state of Colorado had kind of a perfect setup with you and the consortium and with um, our director of um, public health and everything else. It's like the pieces kind of started to fall in place to start this work group and actually, you know, have some exciting potential for some some change and some positive change. I think we do. I think the one benefit, well, there's others, but one of the benefits of having this kind of consortium approach mm -hmm. is we didn't view it as the opioid consortium. We always said we're the Colorado right. consortium for prescription drug abuse prevention. Yeah. And we're even talking now abuse may be the wrong word. Yeah, I was maybe, wondering about that. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's, it's, maybe it's 
prescription, you know, it's, it's bad outcomes prevention is kind of what we're trying to do uh, is, is our hope. But right. even misuse, I wouldn't argue that someone who's on a benzodiazepine is, is misusing it. This is a prescribed medication taken according to direction. There yep. is no misuse. Right. There, there, may be a, there may have been a poor job educating on risk. There may yeah. have been a poor job ma- you know, managing someone, offering alternatives, you know, really monitoring somebody very well, mm-hmm. certainly doing a, a good job of tapering. Doctors aren't taught to taper anything. They, they're, they're taught to start things, but they're right. never start, taught to stop things ever in medical school. They're just not taught to do it. Wow. And I teach the pharma, you know, pharmacology classes to medical students all the time. And I stress that with tapering medications when I do, when I do lectures on neuropsychopharmacology, that tapering is as important, if not more important, easy to start somebody. It's yeah. really easy to start somebody. It's very difficult to stop somebody on oh, yeah, any I mean, of these medications. And yeah. like I tell people, if you're gonna have the audacity to pick up a lighter and learn how to use the lighter, and you better learn how to use the fire extinguisher. And sometimes <laughs> it's hard to do, and you think, I don't want to be right. a fireman. But guess what? If you're a fire starter, then you're a fireman now. And it's, it's part of your professional responsibility to be able to do both of these things. And so we're pushing hard, like at the federal level, for better education, for opioids, for, for doctors who get a DEA number. They have to have better education. And okay. we're talking about that right now at the federal level to try to increase it. And, and my argument is they should be doing this for all controlled substances, not just opioids, because the DEA number is for opioids, benzos, stimulants, mm-hmm. and anabolic steroids. It's the four main classes of drugs that are in the Controlled Substances Act. Okay. And all doctors should have more training about those things if they want to right. use and prescribe those things because they have special higher levels of risk. Exactly. And, and you, your comment was was point on because, like you said, they starting and not stopping as I can probably say maybe third to half of the people I work with are polydrugged, some with five, six, seven psychiatric medications. Um, and it's really overwhelming for them to say, okay, well, I want to come off the Benzo, or I want to come off this, what do I do first? And, you know, they can't get any help. They can't right. find any help anywhere. Either they're afraid to touch it, or they're just wanting, the physicians are wanting to prescribe more, or the psychiatrist is prescribing more for them, or they, they think it's just a change in the cocktail. And I'm not I, of course, can never recommend to anybody whether they withdraw or not, and I always make sure I never do. But if they choose to do that and they'd like to find out what happens, it's hard for them to find somebody to work with who will reduce medication. Mm-hmm. It is. The whole idea of, of whether it's reducing, stopping, switching, any of those. Yeah. You know, sort of largely calling de-prescribing on the, on the side of it. There's sort of prescribing, initiation, and there's some people call it tapering, some people call it de-prescribing. But it's how do you then work on the backside of this? Because there's initiation, and then there's this arguably a midpoint where you're trying to figure out whether you're having therapeutic intended effect and whether or not you're having side effects or things that are outweighing those. And ideally, you're constantly monitoring for risk and benefit to make sure that the scales are appropriately balanced in the right direction. The benefit is exceeding the risk. And if it isn't, we shouldn't be doing it if the benefit isn't clearly exceeding the risk. And so that should be going on all the time. And then if it becomes the case where either the therapeutic objective was obtained or somebody is no longer having benefit that is exceeding risk and maybe risk is creeping up and benefit is waning and now we have a point where we need to change this equation, that's where doctors struggle is at that moment. And they're not trained well for it. So I don't blame the doctors that are already out there for for their lack of training. I do take a little bit of an issue with them not being willing to say, look, this is a common problem in my practice. 
Uh, right. I see it. I see it more frequently than I expected to. So I need to get some more training for that. That's yeah, that's what, what I think. You know, whatever what they I, see, because you know they need to learn about the new developments in diabetes and the new drugs for right. hypertension and the new drugs for for Alzheimer's or whatever <laughs> it is. They need to learn that if they're going to treat patients with diabetes and hypertension and Al Alzheimer's. But they're going to con continue to treat people with anxiety. Right. They're going to continue to treat people with these disorders because these disorders aren't going anywhere. Yeah. Um, the disorders are there. The in fact, they're, they're increasing there. significantly yeah. lately. That's so. very good evidence that they're increasing. Yeah. And if you ever wanted an increase, you know, COVID's a perfect thing. <laughs> you want some stress level. You want some stress level. Yeah. This is like the biggest shock to the system that we've probably had in a, in a better part of the century. Well, yeah. And they were already doubling up, especially in colleges and with the youth before COVID hit. Yep. And now with COVID, I, I can't even imagine what the numbers are now. I know we have some initials, but it's going to be really surprising. It really will be. So we've got this problem and it's going to, you know, unfortunately, yeah. I really do believe it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But we have to be banging the drum as loudly as we possibly can. Right. And, you know, signing up as many of our colleagues as we can yeah. join this effort and to continue to, to make people aware of it. And I think that's where it starts. You know, it really does. I don't think there's a, a big change doesn't just happen to everybody overnight. You know, it starts as a starts as, a, as the seed crystals of knowledge and, and yeah. awareness and sharing of information and sort of building it. And that's where the consortium can help. We've done this before. We've had sort of a blueprint for 30 years experience with what, how to approach opioids. Right. And I don't believe approaching them as a, as a problematic class of drugs that have some accepted use. Yeah. And we're not advocating getting rid of opioids entirely, nor am I advocating getting rid of benzodiazepines mm -hmm. entirely. I'm not right. advocating for that. You know, right. I didn't have Versed for my, for my uh, appendectomy. I probably wouldn't have done quite so well. <laughs> yeah. so I'm, I'm very glad there was a benzodiazepine for me yeah. to have five milligrams of. Yeah, you're, you're going to want that. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to want that. It's really yeah. helped me. And so I didn't remember them cutting me open. Right. So I'm very glad I had it. But limited circumstances, you know, limited yeah. circumstances, I think, is the key. And to teach doctors what those are and oh, patient yeah. expectations about what they are. We have a, a corresponding problem on the, the public education side about people having sort of generally in this country the pill for every ill kind of mentality. Right, right. If I just get the right prescription, my life will be fine. Yeah. And boy, it couldn't be more wrong. And you know, there is no drug and it's without side effects. There is yeah. no drug. There's no free lunch. Pharmacology day one, walk into day one of pharmacology. There, there is no free lunch. Yeah. I, I mentioned that in my book. One of the lines I, I said was, you know, I, I'm not taking a lot of blame for it, but I'm taking a little because, you know, we want that pill. Right. You know, we want the simple solution. We want the easy solution. We don't want to have to go to counseling. We don't want to right. have to read books. We don't have to learn how to meditate. We don't have to take yoga. We want right. the pill. Right. Those other life changes are harder yeah. than simply taking a pill. Though knowing if you knew then what you knew now. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. I don't think. No, they, they, they should have been educated and no one and told us what we were getting into when we took the pill. Right. <laughs> And but how that, that really can look, right? I yeah. mean, it's not so everybody knows, well, I could have side effects. People tend to think they need like a headache or a stomach ache is what people right. tend to think when you say right. side effects. Yeah. And we, so all, you know, we think a big part of this now is going to be increasing doctor's ability and patient's ability to be fully informed and really know what informed consent means yeah. and redefine what informed consent means for psychotropic medications that are, that are potentially problematic. In my view, right. opioids, benzodiazepines, and stimulants. They should all be treated the same way that we really need to do a better job 
of yeah. consenting people so they fully understand risks and benefits of controlled substances. Yeah, and, and the truth is 95% of the people plus I work with didn't even go in asking for a medication. Like mine was actually prescribed for stomach distress. Um, and of course I was given absolutely no warning, but I had chronic stomach issues and I assume my, my GP at the time thought it might, that it might be a stress induced, you know, a symptom or problem. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't even know, really know it was an anti-anxiety drug when it was prescribed to me, let alone any warning. So, right. And that's a problem. Obviously it's a problem. Yeah. And, and we had a whole generation of doctors who were some of them still practicing that were really, it was much more of a paternalistic model where yeah. you would talk to the doctor about your symptoms. They, they give you what they think the right treatment course yeah. is. And then you would just go, your duty is to go execute the regimen that the doctor prescribes for you, not to question anything like that. Exactly. But now, exactly. Things are changing for the better which is patients know a lot more going in the door. Uh, and then really we should be having shared decision-making right? where patients and doctors are discussing risks and benefits. And here's a treatment exactly. approach. And exactly. there's this other treatment approach. And there's this other treatment approach. Or yeah. if we don't do anything, here's what might happen if we just don't even do anything. Yeah. Um, some people spontaneously resolve, some don't. You know, you should know what, what's going to happen to me if I don't do anything at all. Yeah, or, I get what are my treatment options and what are the risks and benefits of each right. treatment option? And so we can pick which one is right for me and I can make a fully informed decision. And some people might still choose the same way, but I bet a lot of people would choose differently. And I agree. I get, um, I get some pushback sometimes from listeners, you know, about working with a doctor. And one thing I always emphasize is it's just a good idea to work with a physician when you're going to, if you decide to withdraw, because not only because you need the prescriptions and of course, and everything else, but also you're going to have some symptomatology that's going to be kicking in and you just need somebody who knows what you're going through, even if he or she may not be as benzo wise as we like to call it, but somebody who understands your desire to do that agrees to help you with it, but just to walk along with you, because there's a lot of, you know, we got, I had five EKGs during my withdrawal because I thought I was having a heart attack that many times. Um, it was nice to have a physician who, you know, understood why I was asking for these tests and was willing to work with it because she knew that it was going to ease my anxiety by giving a simple EKG um, and was going to keep me out of her office for another month or two. Right. You yeah. know, and, and having that person as a partner and you, as, as you mentioned, it's finding that partnership that I think you're right. We leave the paternalistic model and go more into a, you're a partner with your doctor and you're working together on your health. But Physicians are very helpful in that, and they are the ones that can prescribe the lower tapering of the medication, which is very helpful. But they also can see you through a lot of the complications that go along for some of us um, with withdrawal. Of course, absolutely. And that's how it should work. You know, the, the shared yeah. decision-making model has actually been studied and not, you know, it's, to me, it's kind of the most, the biggest no-brainer, like, why do we need to study this? But <laughs> it's it sort of, a, you know, it's been shown really well that people do a lot better if there's yeah. a shared decision-making model because they're bought into the decision, they're more informed, Absolutely. their outcomes are better. I mean, it's all the things you would expect, but it's kind of like, hey, if we study it, the sun's going to come up tomorrow. And if I start looking at the east and look at mm -hmm. that, it's going to come up tomorrow. And it's kind of know what the answer is going to be. But, oh, yeah. you know, it's been studied. It's as reliable as the sun coming up in the east and setting in the west that if patients are, are working collaboratively, right. collaboratively with their doctor, they do better. So that's, yeah. that's what we're hoping for. Hey, I want to ask you one thing about um, flumazenil. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yes. Um, I just come, I mean, I get reports and I'm getting reports periodically. We talk about slow taper and that of course is our standard. Of course, we often based on the Ashton manual as I know you're familiar with, um, 
but the whole slow taper protocol is still our standard. But of course, you do get information coming through. The Peterson, of course, Jordan Peterson's story was a big part of that. But also other people that I've had email me and tell me that they've done maybe not the ultra rapid detox, but a more of a detox procedure using flumazenil, not, not the one that um, Peterson went through. But is there a promise? I know this has been tested for a couple of decades and they've looked into it, but is there a promise in your opinion from flumazenil for maybe not a rapid detox, but for aiding in detox for some people coming off of benzodiazepines? I think there, I think there could be, and I think we, okay. you know, the short answer is I think we need to study it. I think it has promise for that because obviously okay. it's been used sort of as a reverser for benzodiazepine-induced sedation or yeah. Why don't, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about stuff. what it is so they understand? Right, and it's a, it's what's called a benzodiazepine antagonist, okay. or it's a receptor blocker where a benzodiazepine will attach to a certain type of receptor in your body and and cause it to have an action. So it's an agonist. Um, a flumazenil is an antagonist that sits on this receptor, occupies it, but does not activate those effects. So it's a it's called an antagonist, much as right. though there is one for naloxone is an antagonist to opioids. Right. It's a pure antagonist, and whereas hydrocodone, oxycodone is an agonist, gives you an effect, and naloxone sits on the opioid receptor, kicks everything else off, and sits there and occupies the receptor but doesn't do anything. So it's it's good for reversing things like sedation. Okay. And what it's been used for so far has been things like if you someone's doing benzodiazepine, either augmented or benzo alone, sedation for like dental procedures. Um, some some oral surgeons will use benzodiazepines intravenously um, for sedation. Mm -hmm. And uh, others will use them as an adjunctive to anesthetic um, of a different kind, you know, and then they'll put okay. on some benzodiazepine. But then if there's too much sedation, they can reverse that with using some of the flumazenil and say, all right, we're going to reverse some of the effects of the benzos. And that's been done in this acute way. So I think there's promise for occupying these receptors, right. receptors not having people think they have to be stimulated, but having something occupying the receptor. And at least potentially, theoretically, that would be useful in the short-term acute kinds of withdrawal phase from benzodiazepines. We don't have a lot of studies in this regard to say, oh, it's effective and safe for a benzo withdrawal you know, phenomenon uh, for detoxification kinds of protocols. We don't have a lot of data okay. um, on that yet, but I think there's promise. And that's what okay. I would, I, I'm eagerly hoping that people are doing trials like that or will and can find answers to that question. Just like with opioid detoxification, any sort of detox or medical withdrawal management is really important to have available as a strategy for a, for a subset of the population that need it. Right, right. And especially for extreme cases. I don't know if it's probably as recommended. I mean, not yet at all, of course, but once it's approved, maybe more for more your your average case of, of withdrawal and de of dependence. Right. And you could, you know, there could be very low dose kinds of things. Depends yeah. on, there's a lot of different theoretical, I'm not, I'm not offering up any evidence no, that it, no. it and, does or yeah. doesn't work for these things, but there's theoretical right. advantages to say, okay. you know, at small enough dose, you might be able to do something that's adjunctive to the beginning okay. stage of the taper for somebody who is on a high dose of oral benzos. Or if there is a rapid detox going on, maybe there does need to be something like this that's intravenous and could be for detox management for a 24 to 72 hour period, you yeah. know, whatever it is, one to four days is a typical detox window, okay. depending on the, depending on the medication. So, yeah, you know, I, I know a few people who yeah. are doing doing some of the slower, um, lower dosage um, treatment with flumazenil and trying it out. So I think there's a couple of physicians even in the States here are, who have been working with it. So Right. And they can go off label with doctors. It's legal exactly. for them to prescribe off label to try something that they believe in their 
professional judgment, has rationale for being something that could work. Right. And then if the patient is consented that, hey, this is what we're going to try and here's why they should be consenting their patient that this is why we're doing it. It's not on the label, okay. but we're going to give this a try for this reason. And if the patient is informed and consents yeah. and the doctor goes off label and does their job, there's a, there's a pathway for yeah. doctors to try that okay. and do it appropriately, legally, and ethically. It's just not yet has enough evidence underneath it that we yeah. can make in these conclusions that we can say, Hey, we should recommend this as the best practice. And, and also, I want to make sure make this clear, especially for people who are listening, is that it's not a miracle cure. Um, this is something that can aid in a taper and in reducing your drugs and in coming off of them, but it's not in itself something that's going to fix benzodiazepine dependence. That's correct. That's okay. Right. I just want to make sure we make that clear. Sort of thing. Right. It's a temporary sort of short-term window thing. So it's right. been used right now in the anesthesia setting, you know, post, yeah. post during and after surgery is where it's typically used now. Okay. And it's a very limited setting, but it's obviously as acute as it's going to get because you're, you're somebody's unconscious and we're trying to bring them back from maybe being overly sedated or having trouble kind of coming out of sedation and right. it can accelerate somebody coming out of an over sedated state. And that's a different phenomenon. But even then it's, it is a, it's a short term thing and it would be a, a tool in the toolbox to help somebody perhaps going through, you know, detoxification kinds of symptoms if they're rapidly withdrawing from a higher dose mm -hmm. of benzos it could potentially be a bridge like some people have if they're trying to come off a really high dose of opioids and get onto a different kind of medication like buprenorphine or something. We use them often drugs like that as a bridge to get them over to a stabilized tapering kind of regimen. Okay. I gotcha. Um, before we let, let you go, I want to talk a little bit about the whole physiology side of things with benzodiazepines. Um, within the benzo community, we focus a lot on GABA receptors. I know that's one of the primary mechanisms that has been identified as being affected, especially the downregulation of the GABA receptors. Um, but I also know like with, with Dr. Wright, when I've had a few conversations with him, he often talks about peripheral nervous system too. What, from your standpoint, what do we know and what don't we know right now as far as the mechanisms of benzodiazepines that's leading to dependence and withdrawal complications? Yeah, most of what we know, frankly, is in the GABAminergic system. Most okay. of our knowledge, 90% plus, is probably in the GABAminergic system is where our knowledge is. We do know there's other effects of, of benzodiazepines throughout the body. Okay. Um, you know, no drug is really terribly, unfortunately, no drug is terribly selective. Um, right. when, you, when you stick this in the body, there are other things in terms of the central and peripheral nervous systems, potentially cardiac effects that, that can be some receptors in, in, and around the, in, the, or in and around the heart, some receptors in the GI system, some that can affect right. the, the, the neuromusculature and the muscular system. So there's different kinds of things that we're seeing, but they're not as well studied okay. as the GABA system and downregulation because that's predominantly what we've been dealing with is the anxiety spectrum and regulation yeah. of anxiety and mood is what's been studied for, you know, 50, 60 years, okay. where some of these others are more recent, but there's just dozens and dozens of receptor systems that benzodiazepines have some affinity for. Okay. So the effects are likely to be distributed around the body in different ways. Right. We just don't fully understand them yet. And it's kind of a frightening answer in a way. Um, but yeah, it's also it the reality of it, that there's probably these diffuse effects that we're not really sure of. And we're doing the same thing with opioids, finding out what the cardiac right. effects really are. Okay. The GI effects really are. But some of the peripheral yeah. effects really are. Yeah, the GI ones are interesting. I, I noticed the other day that um, the, of the 67 podcasts I'd done previously, the one that's gotten the most attention and the most downloads is on benzo belly. So like you said, on the GI tract issues, 
I think that comes out as a big surprise, especially of the level of GABA receptors within the digestive tract, that the GI system is so affected for people going through dependence and withdrawals. You know, and I'm talking um, reactions that last months and years for some people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What, as you mentioned, with the, with the GABA receptors in the GI tract, what, what happens? What, I mean, from your standpoint, scientifically speaking, what happens that makes that, you know, become such a problem and that food can be such an instigator of symptomatology? Yeah, it's just an interesting thing. You know, digestion itself is a very complex procedure. Right. It's regulated by a lot of on and off switches. So things that will promote, promote you know, gastric motility and stasis, things that promote acid secretion, mm -hmm. things that are stressors in it independently. So it's interesting because stress and the mediation of stress, which is kind of GABA mediated and two or three other neuro, neurotransmitters mediate stress, but stress in and of itself affects digestion. And that's where it, right. it, it in turn can affect acid production mm -hmm. and in turn can affect motility. So there's all these different systems working and it, it's a, it's a very finely balanced system to regulate your, your digestive tract much more so than people think. It's okay. just a, a bag with some acid in it to digest your food. <laughs> and it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and, and it just has a lot of nuances to it. So it's, we think it's several things going on, both the okay. direct effect on the receptors, but also some of these other effects that it can affect motility, it can affect acid secretion, and then just your level of stress. And if your stress right. isn't managed anymore and your anxiety goes up, then that can independently on its own through an indirect pathway start to affect your digestion. Okay. So it's yeah, kind of complicated, it's, but many factors. Right. And, and with the many different symptoms, I mean, one of the common things we hear all the time is that if you haven't experienced it, you can't understand it. And it's, I think people that go through a lot of different medical conditions would say the same thing, but I think the severity, the um, length and the broad range of symptoms is the one that's most difficult for us to get other people to understand the actual degree of what this is to go through. Right. Totally and, um, yeah, and how, how do we get people to understand that better, I think, is the question. I, re I really believe the keys are, you know, counting and documenting okay. and then elevating. You know, it's getting people aware of it. So we have to have people who are willing to, to count and, and, and figure out how to better count and describe this phenomenon and how often it's happening. To have some studies to show how frequent this is. Then to elevate this, and we need, we need champions and we need awareness. We need you know, it's kind of a similar playbook that we used, I think, with opioids. So we think we have some lessons in this playbook to bring to bear that okay. how do we get people engaged for doing a better job with data and developing the data to demonstrate how big this is? How do we start to raise awareness among prescribers? How do we start to raise awareness among uh, uh, the pub general public? Right. How do we work with edu um, um, legislators? How do we work with state agency folks? And start engaging them all and start raising their awareness so that in time we can start cross-fertilizing trying new things clinically and, and building this. And it's, it's hard because it really is. It's, this is like eating an elephant. The problem oh, yeah. is huge. Yeah. We're not going to solve it tomorrow, but we have to have a plan to try to eat this elephant or we're never <laughs> going to get this thing done because like, we just we stare at the elephant and think it's pretty daunting. You know, how are we going to yeah. raise awareness of everybody? How are we going to oh. change laws? How are we going to change practice? How are we going to get a doctors to understand? And it's a daunting challenge, but mm -hmm. there is a way to do it. Okay. And I think we just have to start taking bites, start using the methods that we know how to do, start raising this awareness. And it's a okay. lot of, it's a lot of rolling up the sleeves, but I think there's, a, I think there are ways that we have shown that work that we can apply here too. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. I probably get more than any other one. And that is, will I fully heal? 
Um, I get this all the time and always try to help people understand, but it's a good question. Um, what are the odds that there's still some of this lingering symptoms? I mean, I was on 12 years and I'm now seven years off and still have symptoms of my experience. What are the odds that for people, even as the minority, um, might, this might be permanent? Uh, what do you tell people that you know are asking is, will I be back to normal? And the honest answer, as difficult as it is, is we don't know. Okay. That's the truth of it. We really don't know if there's permanent damage. It appears that a lot of this is reversible. Okay. That's the good news is that's what it appears that a lot of this is neuroplastic and that it is reversible. Okay. We don't know if it's a hundred percent reversible or not. It's not well understood enough on life course of it and some of the changes to see what is and isn't, you know, the extent of the reversal and how things, how things manifest. So I don't really have an answer because I don't have enough data. The good news is it appears that many of these things operate in a plastic way. Right. And many of these things do seem to lessen and lessen and lessen over time. And, you know, so I'm optimistic, but I don't have a, a concrete answer for people to say, oh yes, this will always happen. Or on the other hand, I don't say, no, no, you're never gonna ever feel fully well. I don't, I can't say that either. That's fair. It's just kind of one of these where we're learning as we go along. Yeah. And we need to, you know, we need to understand it better so we can give people the best informed answer. Luckily, we think that a lot of these systems that we're dealing with are plastic ones. And so it gives me cause for optimism. That's wonderful. Um, last question. I just want to ask you if you have any closing words or anything you'd like to share with our audience before we close out this interview. Well, I just think the first are that I've, I've seen what you're experiencing. I've had the good fortune not to experience it myself directly, but I've seen it and I know that it's real. So understand that there are Thank people you. that do know that what you're experiencing is real. And so it's, it's, that's the absolute truth. And that's I firmly huge. believe that. Yeah. Second is that there are ways to address this, you know, in terms of education and policy and practice, uh, potential new medications to help things. There's alternative methodologies for dealing with stress in the first place and the reasons for using benzos. There's lots of developments there. So there's promising practices that, that we believe can help. And then there's ways to try to affect policy and affect system change that we really believe can help. The last thing I would say would be, you know, do everything you can to be a voice. Okay. You know, attend meetings like these of, of Benzo Wise. Participate in whatever way you can with whatever advocacy organization or organizations that you can um, to, to amplify your voice so that you can and will be heard. And so that's what we, but we need everybody to grab a shovel. That's why we, I used to, in the early days of the consortium, give out these little teeny plastic shovels at our annual meeting. And it was for a reason. It was like, everybody needs to re remember to carry around their little tiny shovel. Right. Thinking this little tiny shovel is not gonna move a mountain. But my little tiny shovel, if everybody else has their little tiny shovel, we can move that mountain. We all have to grab a shovel and lift as much dirt as we can. And I'm that's committed perfect. to wielding the biggest one that I have. We all need to, to help, and I, I I welcome collaborating with you. That's wonderful, Rob. Thank you so much. And I, I want to chat with you just briefly after I close here, but I want to thank you um, so much for being on the show today. This has been a true delight. Your information is, I think, exactly what I was looking for for this conversation today, and I'm so, so pleased to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thanks a lot, Dave. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I just want to thank Dr. Valak again for being on our show, um, for giving us his time, for speaking with us, and, and just having so much background and information to share. I learned a lot from this conversation, as I have from my other conversations with Rob as I've worked with him. 
Um, these are the people in the industry, um, the doctors, the scientists, even you know people in the pharmaceutical industry who have a lot of knowledge. And and when they start to see what we're going through, when we start to make them more aware, when we start to help them understand, I really believe we start to make a difference. And they start to help, and they help out with their knowledge, and their knowledge is vital to what we're doing, to our advocacy. So I thank them. I thank Dr. Valak for his time, for all he's doing, and hope we'll have him on again here down the line. And um, that being said, let's move on to our moment of peace. But before we do that, allow me just 30 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before you return to the chaos of the real world. Please remember to only do this if you are in a safe place where you can relax, close your eyes, and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Our meditation today is a lighthouse meditation. We've done this one before, and I like to visit it periodically. Our lives, our minds, operate at a mile a minute. Thoughts come and go so fast, we almost don't have time to even know what we're thinking or what's next or what just happened. In today's meditation, we're going to raise our awareness of the thoughts in our mind. Thoughts come and go, and we don't always control them. But if you can learn to notice the thoughts, where they come from, when they arise, and when they leave, you can learn to manage your thinking a little better. Today, all we're going to do is to Listen for our thoughts, just like our listening meditation last episode, where we were listening for sounds. Today, we're listening in our own minds for our thoughts, paying attention to them as they arise and pass. No judgment. These thoughts aren't good. They're not bad. They're just thoughts, and we can let them pass. If your mind wanders, good, because that's what we're paying attention to today. Let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly. Let's do that again. 
Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. And let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. One more time. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. And let it out slowly, relaxing your entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally. And open your mind to what may come. Be aware of your thoughts coming and going with no judgment at all. Continue to do this for one minute. next scheduled episode is episode 71, and it will be released on November 1st. Please, let us know how we did. I'd really like to hear from you. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.